We are going to be in John chapter 13 at verse 1. We'll begin reading. We're going to cover verses 1 through 17. And Father, we do ask that you just bless this time tonight as we find ourselves in Holy Week. And, and it's a glorious time for us as Christians and how we need it uh, during this time of spring. Uh, it speaks of life and things are coming forth, budding forth, the, the trees, the plants. The grass is getting greener, and uh, the weather's getting warmer. And Lord, for us spiritually, I pray that things would uh, just spring forth in our hearts, uh, a warmth, uh, a closeness to you, just an, once again an awe. We come out of a, a winter spiritually for a lot of us, coming out of this pandemic and the uncertainty, and it's still all around us. But, Lord, we do pray that um, you would just bless this weekend when we gather, because last year we missed it. Last year, uh, in our hearts, we celebrated Easter. We did online. But uh, the fact that we get to gather together in person once again uh, is so glorious. And uh, we never want to take the opportunities we have to gather together for granted. And so, Lord, tonight, I just pray as people are in their homes or wherever they're at, uh, listening to this teaching, I, I pray that you would just stir our hearts towards servanthood, and especially today when you want to use us to serve others and how we can do that. And, and we can learn from this, this chapter that's very familiar that a lot of churches are even going to talk about this week during Holy Week. But Lord, we really want to understand what Jesus is showing us through your word. So teach us, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So as I mentioned to you on Sunday, we did look at the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. It was just a wonderful study as we are in John chapter 12. And now as we move into chapter 13, keep in mind that John writes his gospel after the synoptic gospels had been penned. And in John's gospel, he writes a lot about Jesus' ministry in Jerusalem. He gives us accounts that aren't found in the synoptic gospels. The synoptic writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they place an emphasis in Jesus' ministry in the Galilee region. And we've been seeing that going through Matthew's gospel. It isn't that they don't give any account here in what took place in Jerusalem, but John kind of does that in Jesus' ministry, what happened in Jerusalem, gives us those accounts. And then as we see that the triumphal entry is recorded in all four Gospels, then the synoptic writers begin to emphasize what took place in the last week of Jesus' ministry in Jerusalem. As on Sunday, the first day of the week, he made his entry into Jerusalem that we talked about on Sunday morning, the, the triumphal entry, Palm Sunday. And then the next day he goes in and he cleanses the temple uh, there in Jerusalem. He rebukes the religious leaders. He said that you made my father's house, which is a house of prayer into a den of thieves. And then the synoptic writers emphasize the religious leaders coming along and trying to uh, accuse Jesus, find a reason to have him arrested. They're, they're determined to put him to death. Well, John doesn't emphasize that. And as we see that Jesus uh, would, in Matthew chapter 23, we're going to see, he's going to give a final rebuke, a, a long rebuke to those religious leaders. He will then withdraw with his disciples, go up on the Mount of Olives. 
He will talk about the signs of his coming. He will talk about the destruction of Jerusalem. And then he withdraws from the crowds. And he withdraws from the religious leaders. And that's where John kind of emphasizes as he picks it up in chapter 13. We come to the last evening that Jesus has with his disciples. It is the Passover dinner. And John gives us great detail of that. Uh, more detail by far than the synoptic writers that, that mention a little bit about it. But, but John really, uh, a quarter of John's gospel from chapter 13 through chapter 17 is dedicated to these last moments that Jesus has with his disciples in that upper room. And, and then they'll make their way to the Garden of Gethsemane. And, and we know that this section is called chapters 13 through 17, the upper room discourse. This is Jesus' private ministry to his disciples. And he is going to, to be spending some time ministering to them, talking with them. And I would encourage you that you spend some time reading those chapters, even this week, before Resurrection Weekend. For, you know, chapters 13 through 17. And I think that as you do, and get alone and, and really consider what Jesus is saying that you're going to be blessed. And we're going to look at, again, part of it in verses 1 through 17 of this chapter. But Jesus, as he spends this last evening with his disciples, he knows that when the sun comes up the next morning, that he would have already begun taking on the cup of suffering and death. But before that, he spends this time, these, this quiet time uh, moment with his disciples as he surrounds himself with them and he shares his heart with them. And he talks to them about, uh, in these chapters, love and abiding in him and the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the coming ministry of the Holy Spirit. I'm not going to leave you as orphans. And he talks to them as we begin uh, this section about servanthood. And remember that as we were in Matthew's gospel before Palm Sunday, that we we're in chapter 18 and the disciples up in the Galilee region uh, before this time, months before Jesus would come to Jerusalem in a triumphal entry in his last week of ministry before his death, that they were in Capernaum and they were disputing who was the greatest in the kingdom. And they asked Jesus, who is the greatest? And we began to look at that section. We'll pick it up again uh, after Resurrection Weekend. But it's a conversation, a dispute that's been going on uh, ever since that time. And Jesus is answering them and teaching them about being great in the kingdom of God. And, of course, we saw in Matthew chapter 18, he says, If you want to enter the kingdom of God, you must humble yourself as his child. Come in childlike faith to him. And then, if you want to be great, you must receive one of these little ones. As he holds a child in the midst of the disciples, and receive one of these, these little ones, a child, in my name. You'll be great in the kingdom of God. So we're going to talk more about that. But here, as they come into this upper room, they're disputing. Luke's gospel tells us who's the greatest in the kingdom. They're still expecting him to usher in the kingdom. I find that quite amazing. They don't understand everything that's going on this night. And, and we know that to be clear, especially from John's um, you know, writings in the upper room discourse. So keep that in mind as we go into chapter 13, as we read in verse 1, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own, who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So Jesus knows that his hour has come. And John, particularly inspired by the Spirit of God, 
He writes that, that Jesus is saying, my hour has come, my hour has come. Uh, in John chapter 2, the first miracle, uh, he told his mother Mary, my hour hasn't come. But now the hour has come for him to, to go to the cross, uh, to be crucified, to be buried and rise again from the grave. And his mind is filled with what he knows is ahead for the next few hours. And the hour has come for him to go to the cross. His heart is filled with, which really amazes me here, that his heart is filled with love for the disciples. And it states that he loved them to the end. And, of course, he would prove his love for them, and he would prove his love for you and for me, as Paul writes in Romans chapter 5, that while we were yet sinners, God proved his love for us as he went and died for us. Why were we yet sinners? He died for us, proving his love for you and for me. And I like that what the end of this verse says, that he loved them to the end. And as you go through this upper room discourse, you know that, as we discussed previously, that these disciples of Jesus were really confused. They, they were troubled in their hearts. They were clueless about what was going on. Even as we read in the triumphal entry as we finish, that they didn't understand the things that were taking place as Jesus came to Jerusalem and set his face to go to Jerusalem to die for the sins of humanity. He's been talking about it for about six months prior to all of this going on. They're arguing who's the greatest in the kingdom. They express their confusion as you read these chapters, 13 through 17. Lord, you know, we don't know where you're going. They're troubled in their hearts. We don't know the way. Show us the Father. Uh, and we know that Jesus is talking to them about uh, that, you know, all kinds of things that are going to be taking place before them. Uh, that you're going to run away. And Peter, you're going to deny me. And there's a betrayer in all of that. And, of course, he loved them to the end. He never stopped loving them. And he'll never stop loving you. And we can feel like, Lord, I'm clueless at times. I don't understand. I blow it. But his love continues and remains to the end. And as he is meeting with them, and Luke's gospel says he desired, he told them, I desire to eat this Passover with you. I desire to be with you, and he desires to be with us. And in verse 2, and Passover being ended, or supper being ended, the devil uh, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going to God, And so as you read this, um, that the hour had come. Um, we know that uh, as Jesus uh, is there with his disciples, that it is Judas that's going to betray Jesus. And Satan is tempting Judas in his heart to betray him. And later we will actually see, as you, you continue through the chapter in verse 27, that Judas entered into Judas. Jesus knows that the Father has given all things into his hands. Jesus knew where he was going and where he had come from. He wasn't confused about what was going on here. Sometimes I, I hear some teachings or, you know, the idea of Jesus was crucified because of unfortunate circumstances. No, he was in control. 
And he said, for this very purpose, I came to this hour. The lamb slain before the foundation of the world. He's been talking about his death, burial, and resurrection, that he'd be handed over to the chief priest and is going to die, but I'm going to rise again. Uh, And he would say in John's gospel that I'm going to be lifted up, and if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. So he came for this very reason. That, that even at the announcement to Joseph uh, that Mary is conceived of the Holy Spirit, is going to bring forth the Son, you shall call his name Jesus, he will save his people from their sins. Uh, he knew he came for the reason of being crucified and rise again from the grave so that we can be forgiven and we can have a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He's going to be going back to the Father. So Jesus at that last supper, as we read about in verse 4, rose from supper and laid aside his garments, took a towel and girded himself. And after that he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. So Jesus is going to be given this exhortation concerning being a servant. But before Jesus gives his exhortation to serve, listen, he gives an example being a servant. And that's the way it was with Jesus. Not only did he tell and instruct his disciples what to do, but he was an example on how to do that. He's teaching them on servanthood. He was the servant of all. And he's going to teach them on love, no greater love than this, than a man laid down his life for his friend. And he's going to give that example of love by dying for them and dying for you and for me. So before he teaches them, listen, this is very important, that he touches them. And he touches them by washing their feet. And I have found that people need to be touched and loved before they can be taught and discipled. You know, we can tell people what we know, and this is what I know, and teach them, and that's a good thing. But we're really effective. We can teach them when we're touching them, touching their lives, when we're serving them. And and you know the saying, you've heard it, that people don't really care how much you know until they know how much you care. And the way that we can show that we care is by touching their lives, you know, serving them. And, and really showing that we care for them. And Jesus here arises and he lays aside his, his outer garment that he, he takes off the robe that he was wearing. He girds himself with the towel, which would act as sort of an apron. And, and he's going to wipe their feet, their feet or wash their feet. Now, keep in mind that they didn't, you know, the roads, many of the roads that they travel were dirt roads. Uh, they wore sandals. Uh, it's springtime, it's the wet time of the season. As you walk uh, from place to place, your feet would get dirty, uh, muddy. Uh, there's animals on the roads, there's manure, all that stuff. And in this culture, it was customary when you went to somebody's house or you were a guest at somebody's house, that your feet would be washed. And sometimes they would have a basin and a, and a, a, and a towel for you to wash your feet. But uh, hospitality was very, very important in this culture. So a host usually, if he could, if he had a servant, would provide a servant to do the foot washing. And it, it would be one that uh, if he had a number of servants, the, that person, then it would be considered the lowest servant that would do the foot washing. Um, 
If, if there wasn't a servant that was available, then the children usually, uh, the youngest of the children, uh, would do the foot washing to those who would come. So that was important. That's the way it was in that culture at that time. And I just wonder, as the disciples came in to that, that upper room and they saw the towels there, they saw the basin of water that was there, and they must have been thinking, okay, we're you know, going to have our feet that are going to be washed. I think they, they kind of understood that part, but I wonder who's going to do it. You know, I'm the greatest of all, so it's not going to be me. It has to be the least. It, probably it's going to be, you know, Matthew. It's probably going to be Thomas or Philip or one of the others. It's not going to be me, you know, Peter would think. And, and you just wonder if those kinds of thoughts were going through the minds of the disciples. And, and this is really amazing when we consider this and we know how it was in that culture Because here is the creator of the universe, God in human flesh, taking the position of a humble servant. He rose from supper, he laid aside his garments, girded himself with the towel, and washed the disciples' feet. And of course, it reminds us of what Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2, as he says that Jesus, who did not consider robbery to be equal with God, that he made himself of no reputation, taking on the form of a bondservant, coming in the likeness of man and being found in the appearance of a man. He humbled himself and was obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. So Paul says, let this mind also be in you that was in Christ Jesus, that you humble yourself and, and you are to take on humility as a servant, just as he did. That is the way the greatness and that's the lesson that he, he's teaching them. And I find it also interesting that this story is not recorded in Mark's gospel because the theme of Mark's gospel is to show us that Jesus was the perfect servant. But the Holy Spirit reserves it for John to record. And could it be so that John showing us this, that he was one that humbled himself, washed the disciples' feet, and this is the one who's divine. This is the Son of God coming from God, God in human flesh, that took on the form of a man, t- was one that was not only became a man, coming in the likeness of man, but in the form of a bondservant, the lowest slave. And here he is a- as he's washing their feet. It leaves us, you know, to consider it and, and to, uh, to show us and to remind us. It humbles us what it does. And here he left the heavenly throne. Jesus laid aside his garments, lay aside his glory, his garments of glory, as he became like us. And Jesus took a towel, girded himself, and Jesus would become a man, take on the form of a servant, as he poured water into that basin and began to wash the disciples' feet. And, of course, Jesus would pour out as he hung on that cross shedding his blood on Calvary's cross. And now we're washed by the blood of Jesus Christ. And as we read in verse 6, then he came to Simon Peter, and Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? And Jesus answered and said to him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but you will know after this. And Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Uh, now, this is where we get the point uh, uh, or where many churches do foot washing services during this week. You know, mundane Thursday, every year they do a foot washing service. And there's nothing wrong with that. 
But as we consider this, foot washing is not a church ordinance. Um, it's more than that. Um, there is a deeper lesson than this. If, if churches do a foot washing uh, service, that's okay. There's nothing wrong with it. But we need to understand that Jesus is teaching us a lesson here. And by the way, when it comes to church practice, when you see it in the Gospels, when it's practiced in the book of Acts, and when it is expounded on in the epistles, then it should be something that the church is practicing. For example, baptism. You see it in the Gospels, the baptism of Jesus. You see it that it is practiced in the book of Acts as the believers were baptized. It's expanded on or expanded, you know, expanded, uh, expanded on in the epistles. And so that's something that we should be practicing. Same with communion. You see it in this upper room that's Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper. Uh, we see it in the book of Acts. Uh, we see it uh, talked about in the epistles. That's when we know that that should be a church practice. But here, we don't see that. It's not found foot washing in the book of Acts. It's not expanded on in the epistles. This is speaking of an attitude of heart. Uh, what should be practiced in our lives? Uh, what should be the attitude of our hearts in ministering to others? And as we read this, you got to love Peter because he gives this protest. Bless his heart. Lord, you're washing my feet. You will never, and that word there in the Greek means not for eternity. Lord, you will never, not for eternity, wash my feet. Now some you know, commentators believe that Peter would be perhaps seated at the far end of the table that they were sitting at. It would be probably a U-shaped table, and it was low to the ground. They didn't sit at dining room tables like what we do in our homes, but they would recline on pillows and be close to the table that was down below and kind of leaning on the elbow or leaning on the pillows. And it is believed that perhaps Peter would be the, the last one that the Lord comes to because he's at the far end of the table. And, and Peter, it's his turn to wash his feet. Now, why is Peter protesting? Well, we don't know exactly for sure. It doesn't tell us. But it could be that Peter thought, you other guys, you other 11, you missed the point by letting Jesus wash your feet. Uh, he wants us to protest and for us to proclaim that he's too great and we're too unworthy. Uh, so Peter makes this dramatic statement. And if that is what Peter was thinking, something like that, of course we are going to see clearly that he was wrong. Or could it be that Peter here, he felt uncomfortable with having Jesus perform such a humble act of service. It could be that for him. Lord, you're washing my feet. You'll never wash my feet. And can you imagine going to somebody's house of prominence? Let's say, for example, you got invited to the White House to eat with the president. And all of a sudden, you know, he comes out and he begins to wash your feet, you know, with the towel. And, and, and that we would feel uncomfortable in that, no matter who was the president. It would just feel uncomfortable because of his position. 
So Jesus answered Peter by saying, you don't understand what I am doing now, but you will. And I believe that Peter would, decades later, when Peter was writing his first epistle, in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5, he's writing to the Christians about humility. And all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. More literally, Peter would write, um, wrap the apron of humility around yourself. And I just wonder when Peter was writing that, that if he didn't think back to this night here that we're reading about, where Jesus wrapped himself with a towel around his waist, he humbled himself and washing their feet. So Peter would write, you wrap yourselves in humility and serve others. But at first he didn't understand. He says, Lord, you will never wash my feet. And Jesus says, Peter... If I do not wash you, you will have no part in me. Now, what does Jesus mean by that? Well, Peter, you need to let me do this. The word wash here in verse 8 means to wash a part of the body. Uh, the word wash in verse 10 means bathe all over. And I think that Jesus is teaching them and showing us about our walk. He was teaching them about their walk. We are cleansed by the blood of Jesus. We're forgiven. But as we walk in this life, as we journey through this life, we can kind of lose perspective at times. Uh, the, you know, we're warring against the flesh, and, the, and then the flesh doesn't like to humble ourselves. We, that doesn't just come naturally, and it's a work of the Spirit in our lives. And we can end up pursuing our own, you know, uh, wants and desires and we need to have our feet washed, in other words. We need to be humbled. We, we need to ask the Lord, please, just bring that humility. Teach me to be humble and to serve others. So that word part means participation. Having a share in something, in someone. And as we humble ourselves, we are in that intimate closeness and fellowship with the Lord uh, and we participate in what he wants us to do and how to, to live our lives, to live for him, not just living for ourselves, walking in a servant's heart. That's the mindset. Exodus chapter 30, during uh, the, 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 the duties of the priest, that they would come to the laver out there in the outer court, um, and they would wash their hands and their feet to do ministry. So here he, he's saying that, Peter, you need to let me do this. Um, and, of course, we do know that if anyone does not accept the cleansing power of Jesus, then we are not his. That's obvious. Uh, but I believe that Jesus is trying to show us something for us, his disciples, that as we just, Lord, work that humility in me to serve others, that as we do that, then it draws us closer to him. We're participating in what God wants for us and being great in the kingdom of God. So Peter changes his mind. Verse 9, Peter uh, said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, He who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew who would betray him. Therefore he said, You are not all clean." So Peter continued to miss the spiritual meaning, but he really was certain, I think, of his desire to be a part of Jesus, to have fellowship with him. Hey, wash my hands and my head too. And Peter, the Lord, says, you've been bathed. You just have dirty feet. You need to have your feet that are washed. David, who probably 
We don't know for sure, but Psalm 119, which is the longest chapter in the Bible and the emphasis on the Word of God, I think it was perhaps, if I had to guess, penned by David. Most scholars believe that. In Psalm 119, verses 9 and 11, uh, he writes, How can a young man cleanse his ways? By taking heed according to your word. Your word I have hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. In Ephesians chapter 5, we read, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself to her that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. Jesus, in just a few moments in this discourse, will tell his disciples that you are already clean because of the word which I've spoken to you. Every time that I come to the word of God and read it, and the same thing is with you, what it does is there's a washing, there's a cleansing that takes place. We're listening to God's word tonight as we have our devotions, as we come to Bible study, as we come together on Sunday mornings, as we take in the word into our hearts, uh, there is a cleansing because the word of God has an effect on us. It, there's a washing, there's a cleansing that takes place, a conviction that takes place, instruction that takes place. Oh Lord, I hear your word because we're in the world. We're not of the world and we're not to be of the world, but we're in the world. And you know how you feel at the end of the day, you watch the news and all the noise around us, you just feel dusty and the dirt of the world. And isn't it true when we are able to come and read his word and there's a cleansing effect that happens and start our day, you know, we usually start our days by taking a shower, you know, in our bodies or washing or at the end of the day. How wonderful it is as we start our day and end our day with being washed with the water of the word because the world just, just affects us so much and to grow in the word. And you hear the word, and it's alive, and it pierces our hearts, and it's wonderful. And just be washed by the words and philosophy of this world. And when at the end of the day, a lot of us come home and say, yuck. So wonderful to have the word of God. In verse 12, so when he had washed their feet, taken his garments, and sat down again, he said to them, do you know what I have done to you? It interests me that Jesus directly asked these guys, do you know what I have done? He wants to make sure that they understand why he did this. Because it's an important lesson that he wants them and, of course, us to understand. So apparently, none of these guys answer him because, again, I think that they're just kind of confused. They're, they're not understanding. They're growing. And you call me teacher, verse 13, and Lord, and you say, well, for I so I am. If I then... Your Lord and teacher have washed your feet. You also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. So you guys, you call me teacher and Lord, and you do well in that. But you know what makes a great teacher, and we've already touched on this, that he never asked his disciples to do something that he wasn't willing to do. And he says that I have done this as an example to what you should do. And remember that the attitude of the disciples coming into this place was who's the greatest? Who's going to get the best position in the kingdom? And, and Jesus, the one who is the Lord of lords and the king of all kings, the creator of all things, rose from supper, he washed their feet, and in a few hours he's going to allow himself to be arrested, 
And he'll go through tremendous pain and suffering and eventual death. And he is the ultimate example of being a servant of all and of loving all. I believe that the greatest teachers are ones that are examples in what they teach. And that's very important for us to consider that not only in ministry, that in ministry we want to be servants. We want to be ministers. That's what the word minister means, to be a servant. But mom and dad's in your home. You know, in the workplace, we don't want to give mixed messages. We don't want to tell our kids as parents or grandparents, you know, you should live this way, and then we're living a different way. We're not being an example of it. Or going to work and saying, I'm a Christian, and we're not an example of a Christian. So we don't want to give those mixed messages. We want to be an example, not that we're going to do it perfectly, but people should see humility and servanthood in us and that we're living for Christ. And what Jesus is telling these guys who are arguing who would be the greatest, he knew that there was a competitive, competitive spirit in the disciples. And that can happen in our lives. It can happen in ministry and in service. He's washing their feet, bringing a correction to their prideful mindset. And Jesus says to them after he washes his feet, do you know, do you understand, do you get it? What I have done for you, you need to understand that being a disciple of mine, that you will be engaged in ministry, and it, it is washing others' feet. It is being a servant. It means humility. I think that one of the tragic things that we've seen in the church is this celebrity kind of mentality. I love that Paul, what he writes in Galatians chapter 2, he said, you know, Peter, the other apostles, you know, they're pillars of the faith, but... You know, we're all equal in God's eyes. You know, it means nothing to me uh, that they're, you know, uh, pillars of the faith. It wasn't that he didn't appreciate their position and what God was doing with them, but he wasn't impressed with it. And then he goes on and he says that I had to rebuke Peter because what he was doing. And, and that's a study for another time. But this mentality uh, of being a celebrity and wanting to be noticed and all that, we need to put that aside. And we need to be servants. And me being a pastor here means that I'm to be a servant. And I know that the Lord's still working in me. But I don't want to lose that. I don't want the staff to lose that and the volunteers and any of us to lose that. And we like to use that term servant in the church, but we don't always like to be treated like a servant. We don't like to take the place of a servant. Now, in Rome, during this time, there's lots of, of servants. And when the master had guests or needed the servant to do something, the servant wasn't there to be the center of attention or to get the glory, or to be one that is honored. He or she was there to serve, to be in the background ready at any given notice to do you know, a task that was asked of him by the master. And that's why the apostles in their epistles, you read that term bondservant. I'm a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Paul or Peter or, you know, they never... Uh, said that I am Paul, the great apostle, you know, he would say I'm an apostle by the will of, of Jesus Christ to show his apostolic authority. But oftentimes he would say that I'm a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Same with Peter, same with the New Testament writers. They saw themselves as servants. They began to understand this. 
So the servant is there to, to, to serve. And Jesus shows us that truly that, that we are to have that servant mentality of washing feet, taking the lower place, to serve others humbly. He continues here in verse 16, Most assuredly I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. So a servant is not above his master. So if Jesus came as a servant to be the servant of all, that we are to humble ourselves and we are to serve others. That's not the mentality of the world. The world desires to be served. To, to rule over. There was another time that Jesus, talking to his disciples about serving, he said, it's the Gentiles that rule and lord over others. It shall not be so with you. Whoever desires to be great among you shall be your servant, and whoever you de- of you desires to be first, you shall be the, the servant of all. For even the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and give himself as a la- ransom to many. So the way to be great in the kingdom, these guys are arguing. Jesus is teaching them in in the verses that we read. Number one, it comes by touching and caring. It comes by touching and caring as you serve others. Second of all, it comes by humility, humbling ourselves and, and willing to take that position of a servant. It comes thirdly by being washed by the word, knowing God's will for our lives, how to please him, how to live for him, to participate in intimate fellowship and closeness with him as we know how to live for him and how, what pleases him. And, and so being washed by the word, knowing the word. And then fourthly, by brokenness. You say, where do you see this in John chapter 13? I want to bring this point out. Because in Luke chapter 7, we see that there's an example who one who came, a woman, came to Simon's house where Jesus was eating dinner with Simon and all the guests there. And Simon was a Pharisee, prideful, judgmental. And a woman came in and fell at the feet of Jesus and began to touch him and wash his feet and, and dry his feet with her hair. And everybody was aghast when she came in. And Simon, he's thinking, if this this prophet, this man knew what kind of woman was touching him. He would send her away. And of course, Jesus corrected Simon, rebuked Simon as she came in humility. Great courage for her to come into that place, washing his feet, worshiping him. And he said, your sins, which are many, are forgiven. Go in peace. It's just an incredible story. And as she heard that invitation, come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden earlier, she came. She said, I, I got to go to him. And she comes in her brokenness. She comes in her brokenness. She's aware of her need for Jesus to be forgiven, her sin. And if we are going to be a servant, we need to come, first of all, in our brokenness to him and to bow down to him. Not in self-reliance, not in trusting in ourselves or, you know, in anything else other than Jesus. Coming in brokenness and in humility and saying, Lord, I need you. I need to be forgiven and to worship him. And you see, that's what we're proclaiming this week. That Jesus died on the cross for you and was put into a tomb and rose again after three days. And he is our salvation. 
We can't save ourselves. He is the Savior of the world. He is your Savior. You can't save yourself or a church or a pastor or trying to be good or there's no other religious leader that came along uh, that can save you. Only Jesus is the Son of God. He is the door. He is the resurrection and the life. He's the door to heaven, to eternal life. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He is your salvation. And he went to the cross and died for your sins. He rose again. And as you come and ask him into your heart, and if you haven't done that, we pray that you would. To humble yourself and come and say, I need you. That you recognize that you're a sinner in need of forgiveness. And ask Jesus to come into your heart to be forgiven. Lord, be my personal Lord and Savior. But also, as Christians, to be servants, that we need to come in our brokenness. You know, A.W. Tozer, and many of you know, said, Before a man can be used greatly, he must be broken deeply. And the Lord wants to break us of our self-reliance and our pride and wanting to be noticed and our arrogance and having the high position all the time. And in our natural tendencies, we want that. We, we want to be noticed. We want to feel important. We, we want the pat on the back. And, and the Lord desires for us, even in our brokenness, and the Lord will break us of those things. If we say, Lord, use me, and it's a good thing. But in the brokenness, he desires for us to be great in the kingdom as he teaches us to take that position, that lonely position of being a servant to serve others. Let's serve others. Let's touch in and really show we care for others. Let's ask the Lord, help me to be humble. That's a continual prayer that we say, Lord, search me and try me and bring humility into my heart and to be ones that we're continually in the word and that we desire to have closeness and fellowship with him. And Lord, to be humbled, even in the brokenness of my life, breaking me of my self-reliance, breaking me of my pride, breaking me of my I know it all and I know what's best and live for myself, that I may participate in what you have for me in serving others. So Father, we thank you for this time and this reminder. And, and Lord, it's, it's not a natural tendency for us to always want to take that position of a servant. And, but, Lord, you desire for us, and, and this is written for us. It wasn't just for the disciples 2,000 years ago, that we are to wash feet. We are to take that position of a servant, to be great in the kingdom of God, to be the servant of all. And, Lord, help us to, to really care for people, to touch people. Help us, Lord, to, to be washed with the water of the word as we're taking in what we know is pleasing to you, being established in truth, how you want us to live. And, and Lord, I pray that you would help us to humble ourselves and, and to be broken of self-reliance, of, to be broken of pride and arrogance and wanting to do things in our own way, uh, having our own agendas, whatever the case may be, and just simply saying, Lord, here I am, use me. Even as Isaiah, uh, as he heard the words of the Lord, who shall I send? He said, send me, Lord. And Isaiah had a very difficult ministry. Just as we know that those who please you, that this world will come against us. And it's not the philosophy of the world, but it is the way to be great in the kingdom is servanthood.
Lord, I pray that you would bless everyone here as we consider these things, how we might serve you in the body of Christ to be used in these last days to touch people's lives. I pray that you bless this weekend as we gather on Good Friday and then Saturday and Sunday Resurrection Weekend. And Lord, that we would come with great joy, rejoicing that Jesus is alive. And Lord, that you've given us eternal life through the cross, through the resurrection and reconciliation with the Father. So Lord, we just commit it all to you. Thank you for tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.